This is Framework Leadership. I'm Kent Engel, and you're listening to Framework Leadership, a podcast about how to bring your personal life and organization, well, bring it to the next level. Today, I'm sitting down with former U.S. Congressman and the new distinguished professor of political science here at Southeastern University, Dennis Ross. Now, during his time in the U.S. legislature, Congressman Ross worked on numerous legislations relating to veterans affairs, national security, education, economics, and government operations. He was also the senior deputy majority whip under majority whip Steve Scalise. And of course, recently it was announced that former Congressman Ross will be spearheading the American Center for Political Leadership, a new think tank that I'm proud to say is based right here in Lakeland. It's my pleasure to welcome Dennis Ross back to Framework Leadership. Welcome. Thank you, Dr. Engel. It's an absolute pleasure. Well, so much has happened uh, in, in your life and, and, of course, in the country since the last time you were on with us. I want, I want to get to the impact of the midterm elections and the launch of the ACPL. Uh, but let's start with your decision to not run for re-election. What, you know, what was behind that decision? Why did you decide now is the moment to do that? When I initially uh, was elected uh, eight years ago, I knew that I would not make a career out of this. I never, ever wanted to make a career out of it. I wanted to continue to be anchored to my life and my family. Uh, but I wanted to serve. And I looked at trying to do 10 years. Uh, at the last election, I realized that if I uh, decided to get out after that election, I would be a lame duck for two years. I did not want to do that. So I made the decision to do it then. More importantly, one thing I've learned through those eight years of being in the Congress is the necessity to engage this next generation in the political process. I believe I can do more and be more effective on the outside based on my experiences than I did when I was on the inside in helping this next generation get involved. Now, the government um, shut down before you actually left office. Correct. The House passed a budget that I assume you believed uh, that would also pass in the, in, yes. in the Senate. Yes, and, and I voted for it, yes. Give, give our listeners a taste of what it was like when you learned that the Senate wasn't going to pass the bill and, uh, and they were headed, you know, you were headed down for, for another shutdown. Well, a couple of things. First of all, I think the, the House missed a great opportunity uh, around December 11th or 12th when, uh, when the president met with Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer and some Republican leadership. And Nancy said, you don't have 218 votes to pass a $5 billion wall. We did. We should have taken it up the next day. That would have kept the momentum going to the Senate. The Senate would have probably had to act it. We had 10 days before the shutdown. Instead, we waited until December 21st before we finally showed that we had the votes. At that point, uh, the, the, the message had changed. It had gone to the Senate. What disappointed me was that the Senate didn't take something up. You know, the process is designed to bounce back into amended versions of the same issue and then eventually go to conference. Uh, instead, it just stagnated. And our system abhors stagnation. And so what I was disappointed in is the Senate didn't at least take up something and send it back to the House for the House to consider. Ultimately, three weeks later, or, or no, 35 days later, uh, they agreed to a three-week uh, CR, but they also agreed to finally go to conference. They should have agreed to go to conference at the end of December to keep the issue in play. That was what was disappointing to me. How, how, maybe discuss how the partisan politics of just the last few years have built to this moment, so to speak, where it just seems like they're just towing the party line. I think that the the, the polarization, the, the uh, intense political partisanship is a symptom of the lack of involvement by, by people in our process. Uh, they have 
been given that, that you're either for me, and if you're not for me, you're totally against me, regardless of how close we are on other issues. And that's that's what I think is driving us apart. It's time that we have leadership that unifies our commonalities. Once we find out how much we have in common, we continue to work through our differences. And we'll always work through those differences, but we just have, the, have to have the infrastructure of process of civil discourse so that we can it, it have our differences of opinions and respect that, but at the same time, let's advance our commonalities. And and that has me very upset right now that that we're allowing our partisan policies to to get in the way. Um, there, if you were to go talk to the majority of the Republicans and the majority of the Democrats one-on-one, they would tell you how much they have in common. They would tell you how much they have friendships with each other on, the, on both sides of the aisle. But the American public needs to see this, and we need to bring it out of the membership of the Congress that we do have commonalities. I'm hopeful that our president, after his um, State of the Union speech, will follow through on his idea of unity. So, so how, how can they showcase a sense of coming together and collaborating? I mean, the shutdown is, is a great example of, of a divided com- – the, the way we've become divided in our nation. How do we get past this in a – Inability. What would be some specific things that you think could happen to push us forward? Well, let's take immigration for a second. Immigration comprehensively has no ch- chance of passing because everybody has their own idea of how we comprehensively had to do that. But if we take it apart piecemeal, if we look at the DACA recipients, I will tell you that I believe a vast majority of Republicans believe that it's ridiculous to deport these DACA, uh, these DACA recipients, these children uh, or young adults that are over here. We could get together and just focus on that. Let's just focus on that. Let's focus on a guest worker program because the Democrats and the Republicans all agree that we need labor in this country, but we have to do it as single subject and not as a comprehensive plan. That will start bringing us together. You know, I I look at my colleagues and I think we all agree that we ought to do better in this country. We all agree that we ought to create a better opportunity for the next generation than, than, than for ourselves. If we focus that as our common goal and keep reminding us of that's what we're doing this, we'll find those common areas. Uh, it's easy to find differences because Small groups raise money off of that. Uh, news outlets love to sensationalize it and have news on that. You won't see the news on things where people get along and get together. It's not about sensationalism. It's about the greater good. Let's focus on those commonalities. And I think, you know, it's going to take leadership. It, it comes down to leadership. Yeah, and, and you know, the president just gave his State of the Union uh, speech, yes. and it it seemed that he was, you know, bringing some of these issues that everybody you know, would would celebrate in terms of working together. How do you think that played out? I think it played out well. I think there were those that were suspicious about it because it makes sense. And if it makes sense, then something's wrong because logic and reason has never been the path by which Congress has followed. But the American public demand, and we've seen this. We've seen this in the results of the, the polling from the ACPL survey. People want us to get together. 80% of the people out there want us to work together. You know, when you're elected to Congress, you're elected to accomplish something, not to just stop things. And, and I think the American public needs to be more engaged. They need to demand from our, uh, our elected officials that they find common ground on certain issues and get through it. That's why we lost the majority. The Republicans lost the majority because for eight years, we said we were going to do all these things. And the only thing we did was tax reform. As a result of that, the American people said, you know, it's time for somebody new. It's time for a different different idea if they're not going to accomplish what we entrusted for them for the last eight years to get done. 
At a time of this uh, recording, we're just a few short days away from possibly the government shutting down again. And of course, uh, uh, the president says he won't sign a bill if it doesn't have wall funding. Uh, uh, the speaker, uh, Nancy Pelosi, says she won't introduce a bill that has wall funding. So what do you what do you think reality wise what's going to happen? Well, there may be a temporary shutdown. I'm hopeful that my rank and file members understand the relevancy that they play in this process and demand from their leadership to have the mandatory process take place where they can do a bill, where they can actually have the discussion in the House and that the majority of people who want to see the government funded and want to see things done to protect border security are given that opportunity to pass that bill in the House and then go to the Senate. What I mean by that is that we've got too few people at the top making the decision that may very well lead to the shutdown because the body will wasn't allowed to work as it was intended. Um, I don't think that we will have the same type of shutdown as we had before. Um, this doesn't play well for either side, and it darn sure doesn't play well for the American public. Uh, this is an opportunity for a leader to shine. Most times, leadership comes out of crises. A lot of times, we create crises by deadlines and things of that nature. But this is a time for a leader to come out and say, we're not going to have a shutdown. This is what I propose, and this is where we ought to go in order to effectuate continued operation of the government. We're so grateful that you are leading the American Center for Political Leadership. You are a gift to our students here. Uh, the ACPL commissioned uh, the first survey, ran on Election Day in November, and we had some exciting and encouraging results. We found that 78% of voters want to see their, as you mentioned, uh, elected officials work for everyone in the general public, compared to only 22% who felt that the elected officials should you know, fight for their policies and their supporters and what they believe. If that's the case, why, um, if it's so overwhelming, why aren't our elected representatives getting that uh, picture? I mean, they have to know, too, what we're discovering uh, through these surveys. So if they know that's what the American people want, then why aren't they doing it? I think that it's, again, come from, it comes from the top down. I think that, uh, for example, I was told when I was in Congress not to co-sponsor a bill with, with Democrats because we don't want them to have an upper hand. I think that's absurd. I don't think any party has a, mon a monopoly on good ideas. Um, and I think that innately these elected officials want to be genuinely civil and do good with their colleagues. We've got to show them and we've got to have this next generation require of them that they actually engage in this civil discourse, that they show that the way you get things done is by a give and take. A word that has become obscene in the political world is now, you know, needs to come back. It's called compromise. It compromises the essence of the political arena. It is what has given us this democracy, which has been so great. And if they can understand and, 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 and their bases have got to understand that compromise is what the American people need to get to the next level of good government and a good society. Now, your belief in finding uh, common ground with people on the other side of the aisle, your leadership in Congress, your faith in the next generation are, are some of the reasons why we are so grateful uh, that you are leading the American Center for Political Leadership. But for our uh, listeners, or many of our listeners who may, who may not know about the ACPL and and, and its brand new think tank that we're launching, launching here at Southeastern. What are some of the pillars of, of, of the ACPL that, that we're focusing on? Civil liberties, preservation of civil liberties. 
You know, that is the one thing that has distinguished this nation from any other nation known to man, is our ability to not only be bestowed by God for our civil liberties, but to be able to protect those civil liberties. And how is it? how are they protected? They're protected through the process. We want to be able to teach process. One of the things that our country has had above all else is the right of due process, that you have an opportunity to have your idea uh, vetted, engaged, and maybe even brought into a law or, 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 or who knows what, but it, the ACPL is going to offer these students a firsthand look at how change is effectuated and how it was intended to, intended to be effectuated by our founding fathers through a process. Uh, we want to make sure that, that, that uh, not only are they given the, the understanding of process, but that they also get a chance to do research so that we can, we can engage people throughout the country of different mindsets. We're not going to be the ones that say, oh, well, they're, they're, they're not the, the right mindset, so we've got to ignore them. No, we want to know what makes them tick. More importantly, our students will know deep down inside how strong a faith they have in themselves, how principled they have become so they can withstand the storms of adversity they are going to come out as they go through life. I mean, that's the political process. You're going to be attacked. You're going to be, you're going to be thrown out there. You're going to be looked at for, for ideas, and if you wither up and go away, then what do we have left? We want to create strong individuals that are solid in their faith, that are solid in their beliefs of this country, and that understand that their advocacy for furthering this democracy is so needed in order to preserve this democracy. You know, when, when you're thinking about making decisions that affect people in their everyday lives, um, bringing that element of human story or you know, just simply sitting down with people and hearing what they're going through, what they're facing, that has to be um, great motivation for those who are elected to serve, to, to make the changes that are, are needed. Do you think that our elected representatives really take the time to listen and to learn and to discover and to, to grab hold of that human story? I thought what was fascinating about the president's um, speech uh, at, at the State of the Union was he did bring a lot of human story and narrative into what he was talking about as he introduced people who were affected um, and, and their contribution. I mean, demonstrating how important it is that those are the people that we're making the decisions for. You know, we all can relate to human interest stories because many of us have endured some of the similar situations that, that people have endured. Some have endured beyond belief, some tragic uh, situations. Uh, and it does bring a sense of, of, um, of unity to be able to, to relate to these human interest stories. Uh, the tragedy of somebody's life, but then the, the, the redemption of being able to, to, to make something of oneself. And, and regardless of your, 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 your upbringing, your demographics, or your education, but knowing that this country gave you that opportunity, these are things that the American people not only want to see, but they can relate to. I would love to see my former colleagues engage in that more and more. Look, I understand what it takes to get elected. I know how you have to play to a base, but ultimately, You've got to remember that the foremost reason you are in office is to do what's good for the greater good. Your best interest should be the best interest of this country. If that is what you are going to follow as an elected official, you will open up and engage those around you to learn these human interest stories. When I was campaigning, the, 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 the anecdotal stories were very powerful. People will sit up and listen to that because they say, you know, I've got a friend like that. I've got a relative like that. 
we want to see that. And I would love to see my colleagues, my former colleagues, use that uh, tool more often. I want to talk about another pillar of the ACPL, advancing political civility. And in the survey uh, I mentioned earlier, we found that 79% of voters believe political leaders have to demonstrate civility, uh, authenticity, <laughs> respect. Um, and again, only 21% believe political leaders must fight for what is right, even if that means getting aggressive and rude. How, how can the ACPL begin to help bring this idea of what true civility means? Well, the first step is that if there's going to be any character attacks or character assassination, regardless of what merit there may be in your argument, you've lost. The American public don't want to see that. They may want to see that in their movies or they might want to read about it in a book, but when they see their elected officials, whom we need to hold up to a higher standard because we want them to exercise political civility, we need to make sure that if they start to assassinate somebody's character, start to attack somebody's character, that regardless of what merit they may have, they've lost. This is something that I find to be amazing in this process, is that it requires constant relationship building with people on both sides of the aisle because whoever may be your adversary today may very well need to be your ally tomorrow because the issue is going to change. That's civility. That's understanding that while I need you now, we may be against each other tomorrow. The issues will change every day. The players will not. And so you've got to exercise that sense of respect for each other's character because you... It, if we understand the passion that somebody has for their beliefs, then we can respect why they're doing it. We may not be able to change their mind and they may not be able to change ours, but at least we have respected the process to allow them that opportunity to present their, 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 their case. Then we decide it. Next we move on. It is, it is the way our system was designed. We have taken it, emasculated it unfortunately through social media and, and polarization, but it's designed to be that way. Civility is what's necessary. It doesn't mean you can't be passionate. In fact, passion is probably the engine that drives your ability to want to get involved in the political process. And, and there's no doubt in your leadership you have modeled civility in a pretty powerful way. I go back to about a year ago, uh, we had a town hall meeting here on the campus of Southeastern University. Uh, and, and you were at the town hall and your good friend. Uh, Democratic Congressman Darren Soto was here as well. And you both got up and talked about the issues and you had differing viewpoints on, on how to come uh, in terms of creating solution for those issues. But the way that you interacted with each other was fascinating to our students. Why? Because all they saw on media was the fighting, the the um, the bickering back and forth and 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 the carefully crafted sound bites that tend to assassinate people's character, but what you demonstrated that day was a sense of we're great friends and we can have a civil conversation. How do you see others that are 
in leadership right now that are our elected representatives that do have those values? I think they have the values, but I think exercising that values, those values is very difficult. You know, Darren and I uh, had been friends before we'd served uh, in the legislature with each other. I will tell you, we probably always cancel out each other's votes, but we also took a trip to Kuwait and to Iraq together one time, and we visited our troops and, 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 and spent time with them. And that builds a relationship. That builds friendship. And, and what I would like to see is greater emphasis on building friendships and relationships with people on the other side, but it's going to take somebody who says, you know what, I will submit to your ideas uh, because I think you're right. And, 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 but let's go on to the next idea. Somebody's got to be able to exercise that sense of civility that says, okay, I'm wrong, you're right, let's move on to the next issue. We don't see that. You can't always be right. And right now, when you take that tact, you polarize the parties and you divide them even further. But it takes leadership to admit that and move on because there's going to be another issue tomorrow. Probably foundational to that is humility. Absolutely. You know, it's one of the, the, the most required virtues, but it's so rarely found in elected office. And I've had a hard time with it too. I mean, I have a very hard time with it because you're ego-driven and you've got people telling you how good you are and how great you are and they'll answer your calls and tell, listen, laugh at your jokes and things of that nature. And then suddenly you're out of office and your phone doesn't ring and your jokes aren't funny. And it's like, wow, all of a sudden you're faced with a very humbling experience. If you experience this while you're in office, I think you have a chance to realize that humility is what people want to see in a leader. I mean, it is it is the one strand that I wish our president would exhibit. It is the one strand that I wish that our speaker would exhibit, that our, our, our majority leader would exhibit, and simply say, you know, you're right. You're right. And you're my friend. Yeah. Let's move on to the next yeah. issue. Yeah, that's good. You've uh, now had a lot of time where you have spent um, having conversations with our students, your teaching. Now that you've been with them, these are the next generation of leaders that will be guiding our country, uh, you know, serving in our communities. Uh, after spending time with these students, what excites you the most about this next generation? Well, I can tell you the students that I've been exposed to through this process here on campus of Southeastern University give me a great sense of motivation. You know, I, 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 uh, I, I kind of got into a, a, a doldrum cycle in my last uh, year in Congress because I, I knew I was going to probably be leaving, wasn't sure what to do, but I just loved this political process and I just felt that this legacy had to be given out there to the understanding of how ne necessary it was to be engaged in this. And then I got to come firsthand with some of these students and I have seen a sense of inquisitiveness, a sense of, 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 of interest and a sense of how can I become one who's going to be a leader of this, 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 this great nation or my community. I see that. It is it is absolutely motivating to me. And as much as I came to try to teach, I'm learning that I'm being taught more by them than I think I'm able to teach them. That gives me great confidence in the future of this country. But what I'd like to see is I'd like to see this become a contagious, and it maybe it will. Maybe there are other kids out there the same way. I say kids, but these students out there the same way that want, that are craving this opportunity to learn how to be a leader in this country. Uh, and that's what I see here. It's what really motivates me to want to get up in the morning and come out here and start getting started. Well, I know our students are grateful for you because you are an amazing relational leader who does want to listen and, and discover and learn so that you can come alongside them uh, in 
the calling that's on their lives and how they may serve. So I know they're grateful. I, I want to encourage everyone listening to go to our ACPL uh, website. It's simply theacpl.org. Uh, you can check out the survey we've been discussing, check out when and where our one-day events are being held across the country, and, and sign up for the updates as the ACPL continues the incredible work of raising up uh, this next generation of political leaders. Dennis, it's been a pleasure again. Thanks for joining us on Framework Leadership. Thank you, Dr. Engel. It's been an honor. To connect with Kent, visit kentingle.com. Also make sure to follow him on Twitter at Kent Ingle and on Facebook at Kent.ingle. Thanks for listening to Framework Leadership.